in Surrey, where city councillors in that city have voted to approve a revised operating budget. That vote took place yesterday. It means taxpayers are looking at a property tax hike of 12.5%. You'll likely recall the budget initially proposed a 17.5% hike, so smaller than that, but still a double-digit increase. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Anita Huberman, CEO and President of the Surrey Board of Trade Anita, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What is your reaction to the vote in favor of a property tax hike of 12.5%? Concerning. Because, number one, they're only talking about impacts to residents. They're not talking about impacts to our business community that bears the greatest burden of taxation. And so businesses are still facing an uncertain future, They don't know actually what their property tax bill is going to be when they receive it in July because every business is assessed differently. Uh, Whether you're a manufacturer or uh, a retailer, etc. So uh, still, uh, there's Metro Vancouver taxes on top of that and also the school tax uh, by the BC government on top of that uh, 12.5% that uh, was approved at last night's council meeting. But again, I reiterate, it's going to be more for businesses. Uh, and it always has been. Uh, and it remains uncertain until we actually get that tax bill, uh, what that cost is going to be. What do you think would have been a more reasonable range? Uh, at least in the 4 to 5% tile, I know the city of Surrey. We at the Surrey Board of Trade, we recognize how challenging things are uh, for this mayor and council. Absolutely, and they're having to make some very challenging, difficult decisions. But again, I reiterate that businesses are facing escalating costs from all angles. The number one message I'm hearing from our members is that they're exhausted. Uh, they can't keep up with all of these increasing costs. Uh, labor force challenges, and so much more. It's just so difficult to be an entrepreneur these days. This uh, comes as we're still waiting for a decision on the future of policing in Surrey. And I know certainly part of this tax hike, a percentage of it has said that it will need to go, I think it was around 9.5% earmarked for, for any of those costs associated with reversing the transition to a municipal force if the city does keep the RCMP. How much of an impact do you think is this the police issue, whether it's a transition or going back, how much of an impact does that having on businesses? Well, it's a huge impact because we're having to pay for a previous political decision. We're waiting uh, for yet another political decision by the D.C. government that has been severely delayed, compromising economic decisions that the city of Surrey needs to make. And it impacts businesses because businesses bear the greatest burden of taxation. They're going to have to bear the brunt of paying for two police forces while we wait for this decision by the D.C. government. And that means um, they're going to spend less on capital investment. They're going to think twice about investing back into the community. Uh, And so all of these things have a very difficult and challenging economic cyclical effect 
not only on businesses themselves, but on the livability of our city. You talked about the price tag and for businesses not really knowing exactly what that is going to be. Uh, I know the number that was uh, that was broken down was that the tax increase, the one that was voted on for the average homeowner in Surrey, would be around $280. Uh, that's a city staff estimate. So I know a lot of homeowners are also business owners, but do businesses need a, a better idea on what this means then as far as what that tax bill is going to be? Yes, absolutely. And we actually called for that within our city budget recommendation letter that we issued uh, earlier this year. And, uh, you know, the message, there needs to be more clear messaging by the city of Surrey on what increases each industry classification is going to uh, receive in terms of property tax increases, fee increases, um, you know, other types of fees. Uh, impacting their property taxes. Uh, There's no opportunity for businesses to be able to plan for the short-term, long-term in the face of last-minute expenses that they have to face. And so um, the city budget, as well as the property taxation message, is only geared towards residents, not businesses. Some of our businesses have been facing 150% property tax increase in each of the past three years. That's unsustainable. And how does it work out, sir? How is it 150% increase? It depends on the size of your property, uh, the best use of that land, uh, what that uh, property is being used for, uh, the size of your building. Uh, There's so many different factors that go into the actual valuation of what the final property tax bill will be for a business. And when we talk about the services as well, if you look at what businesses get in return, are are they getting what they need as far as even with the the increased prices, the increase in costs to the city? Are they getting what they need as far as being supported or, or being in an environment that is working for them? To some extent, yes. Uh, You know, I wouldn't say all things are are terrible. Uh, You know, certainly, you know, we're going to be the largest city in British Columbia and Surrey, and there's economic assets that are really strengthening, uh, you know, that vision of being that great urban center, but also in the Cascadia Corridor. Uh, We're a border city and really leveraging our economic assets across the U.S. border. Um, you know, has been integral to our growth, and the city of Surrey has really supported that. But we really need to enhance livability. We need infrastructure investments uh, on all fronts. Uh, We need to make our city a destination. Um, There's so many pieces, and we really need a revitalized economic and jobs plan for the city to really strengthen and promote the brand and the assets that we have. And we're not there yet. Everything is on hold because we're waiting for this policing decision and uh, the impact, uh, the eventual impact that we'll have to the city budget. I know the mayor also uh, said that uh, you can't build the kind of infrastructure that Surrey Council is planning on without those additional monies, so without those additional tax dollars coming in. Is the infra- infrastructure, do you think, keeping up with as well what businesses need? It isn't because we're growing by 1,200 to 1,400 
uh, new residents a month. We're the highest newcomer destination within British Columbia, and that will only increase with the federal government's immigration targets so 500,000 people a year um, for the next three to five years. Um, you know, we need housing, we need transportation, not only SkyTrain, we need to connect our whole city. Uh, you can, uh, the geography is so huge within the city. You can fit the cities of Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond in our geographic limits, but all of uh, the town centers within the city are not connected through innovative transportation infrastructure. We need housing. We need wraparound supports to help our police, uh, such as, you know, helping those that are um, dealing with mental health, homelessness. Um, the uh, opioid crisis. We need those infrastructure supports, and that is sorely lacking within Surrey and, I would say, even in the South Fraser Economic Region. All right. So we'll leave it there. Anita Huberman, thank you so much for joining us for talking more about this today. Thank you. Earlier today, Vancouver International Airport sent out some information talking about the Nexus Enrollment Centre at YVR, saying that it reopens today, and then it talked a little bit about the new two-step procedure for the enrollment process. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about the backlog and what's happening with Nexus. Joining us to do that is Len Saunders, Blaine Immigration Lawyer. Len, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. How are you, Jill? I'm very well. How about you? Fine, thanks. Uh, When we look at the backlog, I know there are still, I think, hundreds of thousands of people that are either waiting for the first time to get Nexus or to get a Nexus card that perhaps was expired. What are your thoughts or what are you hearing about how this might ease some of that congestion when it comes to people getting those applications in? Well, I don't think it's going to make a huge impact, but at least it's something. At least both governments are realizing you know, there's this quarter million person backlog that's really not getting any shorter the line. And so they're opening up more enrollment centers, they're staffing with more officers. So, you know, I think everything helps trying to get back to pre-pandemic timelines, which were a lot shorter than what they are now. Does it seem strange that we're in this case, I guess it's kind of a workaround and YVR again, showing people that the two-step procedure, step one is to book your interview with a CBSA officer at the enrollment center, and then you complete your application on your next flight to the United States because it's beyond that, uh, the, the immigration area. And, and that's what I think is, is a big difference, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So in the past, you would do a double interview at the U.S. departures, um, you know, right by the Fairmont Hotel there. There was a, an enrollment center, and you'd speak to both the American and the U.S. officers. Now, or so American and Canadian, now you just speak to the Canadian officers, do half of the interview, And then for the second half, you have to go through security, have a flight booked, then speak to an American officer if you have enough time before boarding your flight. So it seems to be a lot more effort to do it, but at least it's getting rid of, you know, some of the people who've been waiting for months, even a year for their interview. And is it people, again, waiting for the interview? Because I always get questions whenever we talk about this, that yes, if you're a first-time Nexus applicant, then you will have the interview. But is it kind of a, it's, it depends whether you get chosen or not when getting, when getting your card renewed? 
Well, on renewals, it seemed to be kind of hit and miss. Now it seems to be everybody who's doing a renewal gets their interview waived. It seems like they've realized if they don't just waive all the renewal interviews, they're never going to ever catch up. So the people who are being interviewed now are, from what I've seen, are strictly first-time applicants. I've got a 17-year-old son. We applied for his renewal a couple of years ago. His interview was waived a year ago. He has the picture when he was 10 years old. When his card expires in four years, he's going to be in his early 20s. He may have a mustache and beard by then. He's not going to look like the same person. These are the kind of, you know, what they're doing, using old pictures, old biometrics, waving interviews to try to at least get people their new cards on renewals. That's, uh, yeah, you're, he's not going to, to look a thing like that photo, probably. Um, do, you, do you see it changing at all? Is this, do you get the impression that this is a temporary measure to deal with the backlog, or is this the way it is now? Maybe this is what they're going to do in Canada, right? They, they still have other offices that haven't reopened. Like, there used to be one on Main Street where you could go and do a double interview, but, you know, the Americans won't go to any of these offices without their weapons, so unless the Canadian government allows Americans to, you know, American officers to walk around BC or Vancouver with their weapons and do interviews in Nexus offices, I think this is kind of the 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 future of how you're going to be interviewed for your Nexus card by an American officer unless you want to come to where I am in Blaine and do it stateside a double interview. And I, I was wondering that. So if somebody does come to the Blaine office to do it there, you, you, you can still do both interviews at that point? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, just, you know, a couple miles down from where I am, you do a double interview. The, the ironic part of that is the Americans have guns, but the Canadians don't. And if I was a Canadian officer, I think I'd be a lot more concerned about being in the U.S. with all the Americans running around with guns. I'd want to have a gun on me. I think the Americans are less likely to need their guns in Canada than the Canadian officers down here. So it's kind of, you know, ironic how it's the wrong side who's really needing weapons at these interviews. Well, and is that actually what it's about? Because it seems like there's been some pushback or, or when, when asked, why is this being dragged out so long and why can't we find a solution to this? It kind of seems like it, it, the answer changes dependent, depending on who you ask about whether or not this really is about American border agents being allowed to carry a, a gun. Officially, both sides are not being upfront here. They say it's because... American officers want the same protections they have in the U.S. and all this stuff. But I get to know all these officers in Blaine, both on the Canadian and the American side. And they all tell me off the record, it is strictly because Americans want guns at Nexus interviews in Canada, period. That's the issue. Hmm. And so did they have that before? No. What, what happened was the Pre-Clearance Act, which was enacted about four or five years ago, allowed Americans to carry guns at pre-flight clearance facilities like Vancouver Airport in Canada. I still disagree with that, but the Canadian government allowed it. Then the Americans tried to push it now to these Nexus offices. It's a slippery slope. You've got to put down your foot at some point. I Respect the Canadian government for saying no. No, we will not allow Americans to have guns outside of pre-clearance because I don't think that was even necessary to begin with. So there's a line drawn in the sand here. Neither side would budge. 
And this is the compromise, this double interview at airport locations in Canada. Hmm. So at this point, then, what advice do you give to your clients or people that you hear from that maybe are thinking of applying or have uh, didn't realize and, and maybe let their Nexus card expire? Well, definitely apply. And what's interesting is just before you called me, I checked to see what available appointments are. There's none now available at Vancouver Airport. They're booked out until the end of September. However, magically, there's a ton of interviews in Blaine in April. So obviously, locally here in the U.S., they've opened up a whole bunch of more spots. So keep checking. As soon as you get your conditional approval, literally check every day. There's apps you can get online and join that will text you in the middle of the night or contact you if there's openings. So there are availabilities. You just have to be diligent and keep checking. Right. Do you think it's possible then, Did people were people that maybe were going to Blaine and then realized that it opened up in, in at YVR? I mean, I guess if you have a flight booked, then you could try going early and getting that appointment, then you wouldn't have to make the trip to Blaine. Yeah, but they're now booked out. So even if you have a flight this summer, you can't do it right. because they're booked out until the end of September. So, And the problem with the airport, you have to coordinate your flight with the appointment, with Nexus, and then come through the American side. It, it seems like I spoke to a senior officer on the American side at the airport recently, and he said, quote, it's not going to be that smooth. And that seems what's probably going to happen. But this is only day two. They opened up yesterday. So this is day two, and who knows what's going to happen. Hopefully everyone who goes to the airport is able to do their second interview at some point on the American side at the airport. Right, because imagine if, you, like you said, you have to plan everything and everything has to go uh, according to plan, which we all know when traveling now that isn't always the case. So there's going to be, I mean, it's inevitable, I would think, there are going to be some people who don't make their appointments. Oh, absolutely. Or, you know, you go through customs for your U.S. appointment after you do the Canadian one in the terminal and you're rushing for your flight. Are you going to miss your flight or miss your interview? So it seems to be a logistic nightmare, but at least, you know, at least it's something. And they're, you know, those Canadian Nexus offices, Jill, they haven't been open for three years. That's a long time. So at least it's a step in the right direction. That is uh, very, very true. Uh, Len, while I have you on the line, any updates with Peace Arch Park or anything else happening in your neck of the woods? No, Peace Arch is is really quiet. What I am seeing is a lot of, um, getting back to the nexus, I'm seeing a lot of people who are doing renewals who are having their cards revoked. Um, They seem to be vetting people a lot more diligently now for any past warnings at the border. So, I'm seeing a ton of people who are now starting to do renewals of their cards who are now having them revoked for kind of almost mysterious reasons. So that's unfortunate, especially now coming to summertime and the longer lineups. Oh, yeah, especially yeah, because and is there, do you have any um, is there anything you can do once it's been revoked? Is there any way you can appeal that? Well, you, there's a mechanism to do an appeal to the ombudsman. When this started happening back in mid-December, I told people, do the appeal, let me know what happens. Now we're, what, four months later, now one person I've spoken to has had their card either reinstated or approved. 
So this seems to be the new issue. They're they're determining that people aren't trusted travelers after having Nexus cards for 20 years. It's like giving someone the key to your house and then later saying, Jill, I want my key back. I don't trust you, but having no reason, it's it's kind of silly. Well, I was going to ask you, what what are the reasons being given for the cards being revoked? They don't give a reasons. They just say you're not considered a trusted traveler anymore. Huh. So that's your a, guess is as good as mine. Yeah, that's a little bit alarming because I think you would think, too, if you've had a card for that long and you're going for what's supposed to be a routine renewal, you're not expecting that. No. And so people are like, they have no idea. They go down to the Nexus office and blame the local officers, say this has nothing to do with us. This is headquarters. And a lot of these are people that commute back and forth daily. And they're telling me it's horrible now having to stay in line because they've relied upon their Nexus cards for 20 years. Hmm. Well, that's uh, definitely something else for us uh, to look into. Len, we will leave it there, though, for today. As always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. Have a great afternoon. A lot of attention lately and some differing reports on whether or not it has been taken down. Well, Trisha Barker joins us now, a former Park Board Commissioner. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. You posted a picture of an encampment that is still in place in Vanier Park. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw and what you put out there and kind of what we're hoping to get some attention to? Well, I do this walk uh, at least a couple times a week and walk um, along the waterfront there and quite often you know, head into that little forested area in Vanier Park just to see what's been happening. And uh, as I got into the forested area, you could smell the smoke. It was very, very strong. So I went in farther and noted a man was walking into the smaller tent with a propane tank. So um, he got inside. I took a picture and then walked out again because, uh, you know, I don't like the danger of the area. But, um, yeah, you know, so many people thought that that intent encampment had been removed, and I just wanted to show that it had not been removed and that people are still living there. And it looks to be pretty much back to what it was back in um, probably November when I first noticed it come up. Uh, a few people have commented on it, saying that there is a wood stove, that there is an active fire happening in that encampment on a daily basis. Is, is that one of the concerns as well? And I know some propane tanks were taken out of there, that it is a fire hazard. Well, yes, and it is in the middle of this forest. And it's a small little forested area, and it's been pretty much abandoned since they've stopped using the pump track there and they t- took away the eagle's nest they actually um, even took away the walking path that used to go through there. So that area is abandoned, except for that tent encampment. So it is a worry that if there was a fire, that it would spread pretty quickly and probably people wouldn't notice it um, as fast to get someone to, over there to put it out. And of course, then the safety of the people living there. Uh, were you surprised at all that one of the responses to you putting this on social media was a response from the city saying, where in Vanier Park is this? Yeah, that was pretty uh, crazy since they were just there a few weeks ago um, saying that they were dismantling it. And uh, so, yeah, if they, if they don't know it's there, uh, they've had lots of calls coming to that area. I know the police have been there. The fire trucks have been there. I know the uh, park board has been there. This is not a secret. It has been there for months. And to kind of infer that they don't know anything about it, 
you know, you only have to walk, you know, two minutes off the, the, the road that goes down to the Vanier Park. And then the Coast Guard station is right there, too. It, it's right next to everything. So if they don't know about it, uh, that's worrisome. When you were on park board, because I know you can also look at this from the point of view of a, a park board commissioner, you know, being a, a former park board commissioner, did you know about it? Was it was it in uh, this encampment? Was it set up do, that you know of while you were on the board? I believe this was the same people that actually, before the construction started at Snock, there was that forested area where the construction now is. There were a couple of abandoned boats in there, and people often were found living in those boats. And I know um, there was one morning at 6 a.m., because I know some of the people who have lived there, um, there was a massive explosion, and the police and fire showed up very, very quickly. But it scared a lot of people in the neighborhood. So I think those are the people that were living in that area. When the construction started, they moved over to the forested area. So um, there wasn't, uh, when I was a park board commissioner, there wasn't that um, encampment in the forest at that time. And what do you say to some of the criticism that, that this particular encampment has been getting in that as soon as it was kind of brought to the attention of the public, of the park board, there was action taken or there was swift action taken, although I guess we could question that now, seeing as it's clearly still there, but that this was getting a lot more attention than encampments that we've seen on the east side of Vancouver? I thought that the, I actually laughed at that because I had been um, talking to the people at the park board about this back in November, and nobody did anything about it. So to say once, you know, when months later they came in to clean it out and get the propane tanks out of there, it was months after they were first told about it. So it wasn't quick. Hmm. And, and also it's still there. So th- that argument about something on the west side gets removed. No, we've known about that for months, and it is still sitting there. So I think that you'll find most of the encampments that are in parks around town, they're looked at pretty much the same. Do you think that it will change it, the fact that the Synac development, and you mentioned this, it is right next door to that, and there is a lot going on with the building of that development. Do you think that could be part of, of what's used to kind of push this encampment or to move this encampment out of that area? I actually don't see that they're going to move it out of that area. Um, that whole, and it's not a big forested area, has been completely abandoned. And I'm actually being quite surprised about it because that pump track for the kids was only built back in 2019. And there was a lot of push to get that built there. But now the whole place is being abandoned. So um, it's, you know, that's on the other side of the fence from the construction. So I don't see that anyone's going to do anything because no one's been going into that forest since the construction started and the pump track has been abandoned. So I actually think that uh, the people living there probably know that they're going to be uh, free to live there for a long time. And what does that say? And again, I know that, that you come at this from, from a former park board commissioner and, and what you're seeing in that neighborhood. What does that kind of say, though, uh, for, for how do we deal with these encampments? And uh, I know there's the argument that people are saying they have nowhere to go, but it doesn't seem like having open fires and, and these types of encampments in the forests is an answer either. No, it's, it's um, homelessness you know, and dangerous homelessness is never an answer. And we've always talked about the fact that we were not going to um, be allowing this to happen in parks. 
you know, I, I, being a park board commissioner, I only dealt with it when it was happening in parks. But the um, Crab Park encampment is there and is as big as it's always been. Uh, we've still not uh, come up with a solution on what to do when people um, make a tent encampment. And uh, we often offer these people spaces to live. And they have told us that they would rather stay in their tents. So until there's a big pushback on it to make sure that these places are cleaned out, a fire starting in there, that would devastate that whole forested area. And I don't think that, you know, we want to keep as much greenery as we can. And that, you know, being removed would be horrible, along with the safety concern for people. And I just also want to remind people that, um, yes, it was long time ago, but I was homeless when I was a kid. So it's not like I'm immune to understanding why some people pick homelessness. And it was much safer for me to be living in a car than for me to be living with the people I was with in a home. And, um, you know, this is a, a big issue that has to be covered on a whole bunch of different levels. But what I don't appreciate is what people saying, we've cleaned out this encampment when it's still there. And people thinking that just because it was on the west side, it got cleaned out. It did not get cleaned out. It is still sitting there. And as I said this morning, the smoke smell was really, really strong. Yeah, no, and it's it's an excellent point. You're right. It's certainly, it's it's not gone. It is still there and it is still a potential hazard in that forest. And, and Tricia, I'm glad you brought that up as well, because I, I think you're right. People do tend to forget that you also have that perspective. So so if you go back to your time when you were homeless, what what is the best thing that, that could be done for people that are living in these tent, these encampments right now? I think that we have to find out um, for the people that are, homeless and need a, pl- a safe place to stay, we have to find out for one reason why they got there and um, solve that problem. Because sometimes I know with women, it's because they're running from an abusive relationship or they have other issues that we don't even cover when we're talking about some of those homeless issues. We have to solve those problems. And it's not just moving people out And I I think that we also have to understand that there are a lot of people that are in these homeless encampments that that's where they run their businesses, are the chop shops. That's where they do their work. And that's why it's much more efficient for them to be in their tents doing that there. So everyone is an individual. They're there for different reasons. We have to really understand that there are different reasons and and deal with each person you know, with their own story. But homeless camps are just not the answer. And the stuff that goes on in there is not the answer for anyone. We need to help these individuals, the people that are being hurt in these camps. And we have to do it. And I know that there's pushback saying we should just, like, leave them. But that's not the answer. And especially um, coming from a, a person that was there and my life was not good when I was homeless. It was horrible. And I didn't get better until the police came and got me out of there. So we've got to be compassionate to the people who could use the help and get out of there and stop just listening to the people yelling. We've got to start really helping people. 
Well, as you know, especially if you live in the Fraser Valley, there is an ongoing transit strike in that part of the province. And we're starting to hear more and more from people who depend on transit who are not able to get to where they are going. Well, joining us now is President of QP 561, Jane Gibbons, to talk a bit more about this. Jane, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having us. That's great. Thank you. Uh, can you talk a little bit? I know some of the residents who depend on transit are speaking out and uh, in some cases even pleading for a deal to be reached for the return of transit service. How do you respond when you see people who are left in these situations where they're missing medical appointments and unable to get to places like work? Yeah, we we, uh, we are all fully aware of the difficulties that the public is happening or sorry, that is happening for the public. Um, some of our members are in the same boat, their family, uh, their their spouses, and it's it's a difficult situation. We we tried everything we could with the employer. We gave plenty of notice that um, we were going to go out if they weren't willing to negotiate, and unfortunately, it didn't uh, didn't pan out the way we had hoped for it. We're not happy that this is happening to the public. Um, we're asking the public, please contact BC Transit. Let them know that these things are happening to them. And where are things right now as far as uh, I know that uh, there was a withdrawal of services that started uh, back on March 20th. Have there been any moves to getting back to the table or any kind of talks? No, none at all. The employer hasn't contacted us um, to get back to the table. And I know you've been asked this uh, many, many times, but Jane, can you remind us again, what are the main issues for the members of your union? The main issues are wages, of course, and I just want to make it clear, everybody is hearing about this 16% that the employer has offered our members, which is correct, but the only problem that people don't understand is if we took the 16% over five years, in 2025, our members would be making the same wages as all the other drivers make in 2019. So we would still be six years behind in wages. So yes, 16% sounds like a lot, um, but it doesn't bring us anywhere near to the wages that the members of other bus companies are making. No, no pension at all. We have members that have been working here 20 years and there's no pension uh, and then working conditions, trying to make the conditions more palatable for more people to work, to be with their families on a regular basis. Right now, they're working long days and then having like three or four hours in the middle of the day off and then going back to work uh, just to make full wages. So uh, hoping to make that a better situation for our members. Right. So, so working things like split shifts? Yes. Lots of split shifts. Is that something, though, that's in the collective agreement, or how did that come about? That is uh, BC Transit. BC Transit does the runs, and they send it out to uh, the companies, and they say, this is how many uh, runs you have. You have to figure out how to, how to um, make it work. And we do understand, like, the middle of the day, between, like, 11 and 1.30, there's not as many riders. The ridership drops quite a bit. Um, so that's why you don't have a lot of straight shifts from like eight in the morning till four in the afternoon, because there's those few hours where there's not as much ridership, but they're making it so that instead of just a few people have it, they're making it so everybody has those split shifts. So it just, it's just making it less and less 
less and less uh, of a job that you want to come to. So then we're short of drivers and then we're having to do overtime. And it's just the whole situation is just piling up on top of itself. Hmm. Have you had a lot of drivers or members of your union leave because of this? Because of the strike? No, well, because of the strike, but also leading up to the strike, if the conditions were so bad. Mm -hmm. Yes, we often have um, members that uh, just join. Uh, They have sometimes they're in training to be a driver, which is about a four week program. And they leave halfway through training when they find out the situation. So that's where we're not being able to get enough drivers. We have people that have been here six years and like, I'm out of here. I found something better. Uh, So, yeah, it happens on a regular basis that we're losing drivers. And when you talk about it, too, and you're right, 16 percent does sound like like a lot. But when Mm -hmm. you compare it to what other what other comparable jobs are making and I I know you don't want to negotiate and it doesn't work to negotiate through media. But have you put forward a number that would be a reasonable number? Yeah, we, we, we put through uh, what we considered very reasonable with um, uh, close to scale is the best way that I can describe it as, as everybody else is receiving and um, trying to make it easier for the employer to fulfill that and they won't even look at it. So at this point then, what hope do you have or, or what is going to make any difference or, or make one side move in this dispute? Well, we're hoping that the public will uh, start making a really loud noise to BC Transit and to their MLAs, their mayors, because uh, I'm not sure if everyone is aware that Abbotsford and Chilliwack admission, they have a say in how their transit system works as well, because part of that money comes from them. So making um, everybody know this is not right. You need to do something about it. Get back to the table and start negotiating. And until then, I mean, is there anything else? I know things are down to essential services at this point, uh, handy dart running. Uh, Is there anything else that your union can do? Um, Well, right now, we're just trying to keep our members' uh, morale up. Um, It's difficult for them. They they don't like that the public is is not getting what they need. Um, They don't like hurting the public and making it difficult for them. They also are um, not making their wages. They're not making money. So we're trying to make sure that uh, they understand that this is what we need to do to make the uh, employer aware. And they're ready to stand out there, but we just want to make sure that they're safe and taken care of as well. Right. Uh, you mentioned, too, that the, the municipalities, Abbotsford, Mission, Chilliwack, that they, they have a stake in this as well. Uh, is it difficult for you that, and, and I get it's a different part of the region, it's a different part of the province, but is it, is it frustrating as well that it doesn't get the same amount of attention as a transit strike in Metro Vancouver gets? Absolutely. Um, it, and, and the thing is that we come into Metro Vancouver. We drive all the way to Lougheed Station. We have, uh, we have a picket line at Lougheed Station. There's been uh, no media go to visit our picket line at Lougheed Station. That's uh, where we drive every morning, all the way from Chilliwack to Lougheed Station. So we are part of Metro Vancouver now. And uh, Lo- uh, also Langley at Carvel. We are part of Metro Vancouver, and yet we're not treated like Metro Vancouver. So Uh, it is difficult. Right. What about, so would you like to see some kind of intervention as far as government intervention or something, even if it was to bring the two sides back to arbitration or mediation? Not at this point. Um, I know it's... uh, um, 
it seems like it's time, but it's only been a couple of weeks. And uh, we're hoping that uh, over the next week or so, the employer will see that we're serious. We didn't feel that the employer felt we were serious when we were talking strike. Maybe they see now that we are serious and they need to come back because we're not going to get anywhere if they don't. So we're hoping that the government doesn't feel that they need to step in just yet. Um, But we do want the government to be aware of what's going on and start talking to BC Transit and the uh, local areas and say, you know, get these guys going. Right. And I I know there's been a lot of talk on the transit users and, again, people talking about missing their appointments and not being able to get around when we are talking about such a large area. Um, And how are the workers doing? Because it's not easy for workers being on strike either. No, and they are <laughs> they they struggle. They're um, they are uh, carpooling. We're doing a lot of carpooling, so we've kind of tried to set up the picket lines so that like four or five of them uh, that live close together or at the same place that they can drive together. So the cost is not too much. Um, the ones going out to Low Heat Station, we have members that live in Surrey, so we're trying to have the people that live closer to Low Heat because it's a uh, it's an expense for them. Um, the union has bought a lot of coffee, <laughs> so we try to keep them uh, keep them going with coffee and donuts and muffins. And um, there's been a lot of positive positive public um, intervention. I don't know if intervention is the word, but they they've come out. They're they're uh, talking to our members. I was at Low Heat this morning, and a bus emptied out, and half of them just came and stopped and asked them how they were doing. So that's a positive thing for our members, knowing that the public supports them. All right. Well, we will continue watching to see what happens next with this. Jane Gibbons, thanks so much for taking some time today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. We were just hearing from the health minister as well as the premier talking about an announcement to to do with nursing in this province. And Richard Zussman is here now, Global News journalist, to talk a little bit more about what was announced. Richard, thank you so much. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. First uh, jurisdiction to bring in this uh, mandated ratio of patients to nurses. What is this going to look like? Yeah, so this is a seismic shift in the way nursing is done in this province. Right now, there are no ratios in place in terms of nurses to patients. So in some cases, you could be walking into a hospital in British Columbia, and according to the president of BCNU, Amon Graywall, have eight patients to one nurse. Uh, these, This policy shift would seismically change that and put in mandates. So how it would work is in the general population or a palliative case, it would be the the minimum ratio would be four patients to one nurse. And it could be better than that, uh, but that would be a minimum ratio in place. And it goes all the way up to one to one for critical cases. Uh, The challenge here is obviously finding the nurses in order to ensure that the ratios are put in place. So in order to do that, the province will be putting in an extensive recruitment campaign to lure nurses from other parts of the country, as well as internationally, and also encourage those who may have left the profession during the pandemic or these other high points of stress to come back into the nursing profession to become full-time from casual status, which has happened to a lot of nurses, Uh, But it's going to be a challenge. I asked Minister Adrian Dix about this. Every jurisdiction in the world, Jill, needs nurses. And what would make BC stand out? And he pointed to some interesting numbers, which were over the last few years, BC has hired 6% more nurses. Actually, over the last year in Alberta, they have actually lost nurses. It's something like minus 0.2%. And in Ontario, 
they've only gone up 1%. So BC's strategy has already started to work. We'll see if they can do it enough to get to the point where they can actually fulfill these ratios for patients because we know it is largely unsafe for patients and nurses to work in situations where there just aren't enough nurses to deal with the patient's uh, in a in a healthcare situation, and who's going to be checking on this? Because that was yeah. my next question: Where are they going to find these nurses, and what happens if they can't? Yeah, so this is the big piece of all of this. Is so part of it is going to be on the unions. So there could potentially be again. This is all part of an unratified deal. So nurses are going to be voting starting at the end of April on this deal. If it passes as ex- expected, then we'll start seeing the finer details on what this looks like. But the expectation would be this would be part of the grievance process. But if a nurse is put in a situation where they are not um, within the ratio, so a nurse finds that they have to deal with five or six patients at a time, and that's above the ratio, they would likely file a grievance through the union. But we have to wait for those details to find out exactly what that looks like and what that means for patient delivery. And then sort of back to to your question, what happens if they can't get the nurses? I guess it delays being able to put this in place. And regionality is important here too, Jill. These are standards that are going to be put in place everywhere in the province. And we know that it is harder to recruit and retain in many communities in northern BC and rural British Columbia. Sure, we have shortages in Metro Vancouver, but it is easier there to find someone to be a nurse than it is in Castlegar or uh, in Hazleton. And so how can we ensure that there are people that actually want to do the jobs there? That's going to be up to the province to figure out. It's not going to be an easy task. I know you mentioned as well, so this is more than $750 million that are going to be invested in this over three years. Is that the timeline then as far as, or is there a a target goal as to when this is supposed to be in place? Yeah, so again, I asked that question. My colleague Binder Sudgen from CTV asked that (laughs) question, and there were no real answers on what is the timeline here? Like when should a patient actually expect to see this ratio and when should those working on the front lines uh, expect to have that support that they need to properly do their job? We see these ratios in California. Australia has it countrywide. The firm belief in the nurses is it makes it safer for them to do their job and it allows them to be more efficient and treat patients as they have been trained to do so. When we're actually going to see it, it's still unclear. The work is being done. Health Minister Adrian Dixon says they're getting to it right away. When patients will see it, I don't know any better now than I did, you know, weeks ago, months ago, in terms of when we actually may see this change. The deal's on paper here, Jill, but we don't have those firm details on exactly when we're going to see this implemented in the system. All right, Richard, did anything else stick out to you as far as the details of, like you said, this is what the nurses are going to be voting on? Yeah, I think the salary is similar to what we've seen in the other public sector unions. We always expected that that was going to be the case here for the nurses, that they would get similar deals. But these top-ups are significant. The fact that the province is putting in, you mentioned $750 million. There's additional money that makes the total actually more than a billion dollars over three years. That's a lot of financial support from the provincial government to help address an issue that we know is long-term. There are specifics around addressing Uh, First Nations uh, and Indigenous nurses and patients in the system. That's a crucial piece here. Uh, And also mentorship programs as well. We know that nurses have felt largely sort of abandoned by the province at times over the last few years. And and this investment, this acknowledgement helps address some of those concerns. So all, all of that stood out to me. But clearly the big piece here is this attempt to get to ratios which we know are desperately needed 
considering the strains that we've heard time and time again from nurses on the front lines. All right, Richard, thanks so much. I know it's a busy day for you, so thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, some big news coming out of SFU, the varsity football team. The news is that that program is being discontinued. It is coming to an end. So how big of a deal is the fact that the varsity team is coming to an end? Joining us now to talk more about this is Julio Caravada, BC Lions color analyst on AM730, also SFU football alumni. Julio, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. I appreciate it. Uh, was this unexpected, or what was your response <laughs> when you saw this? Yeah, I was. It was totally unexpected. Uh, I heard. I heard late last night that something was brewing, and I honestly didn't believe it. Um, and then, you know, waking up this morning, and then, you know, my, uh, you know, my phone's lighting up saying that it's true. It's going to happen. And uh, I, you know, I've gone from you know this morning where I was really, you know disappointed and really in disbelief and I, I won't lie I'm a little bit more angry now um, one I'm, I'm, I'm upset about how a, how a program that has done what it's done for the past uh, um, you know how many years 57 years you know a statement is put out that they're ending the program that they didn't have the courage to kind of stand up in front of a live press conference and answer questions as to why we are where we are I thought that was uh, you know pretty gutless um, but you know, I, I, I think now I think I just, I feel sick for the kids, you know, like I know what that experience was like for me and how much I cherish that experience and what it's done for, for me as a person, you know, and all the friends and all the experiences that I've gained. And now I think about those poor kids up there now wondering, you know, what's, what's next for them, you know, like some kids that have committed themselves to Simon Fraser this year coming out of high school. And I coach high school football here in, at Centennial in Coquitlam. And we got kids that are going up there for their first year next year. How do you think they feel right now? You I mean, they've passed up other opportunities to go somewhere and play football, to commit to Simon Fraser. And you're finding out through Twitter that, um, you know, they're dropping the football program. And about the kids that are up there right now that are wondering, you know, what my eligibility is like. Where can I go? Um, do, do I take my money with me? And apparently that meeting today, Jill, with the, with the athletes, they, that didn't go very well. They didn't have any, very many answers for the kids. And that, to me, again, is like, how do you not go into a meeting like that prepared to answer these questions? These kids, it's their future. It's their life. It means everything for them. It just sickens me that uh, this is where they are today. Uh, in that statement, uh, as you mentioned, it came out uh, in a statement from the organization. Uh, the, a couple of things that, that stuck out uh, saying that they felt uh, like they weren't uh, giving, uh, that wasn't an acceptable experience oh, for the God. students anymore because they had not been invited to continue with Lone Star, that there was no conference to play yeah. Uh, yeah. for 2024. Uh, from the, the, the sound of your voice, I, I'm, I'm getting from you, you thinking that, that that's not a good enough reason. Well, yeah, but here, here's the thing about that, Jill. And, and Hey, I understand that there is probably a, a lot of other factors that go into this. I understand there's probably a lot of uh, like money is an issue or whatever, whatever the issues are. So, like, have some transparency and tell tell everybody what it is. But you think of, I, I'll tell you from a like from just from the kids' standpoint, you're talking about a program now. They just finished up their spring ball, their spring training, where they get you know a couple of weeks in March. Here they go out onto the field and they have spring training and they do all that kind of stuff. We're talking about the, the beginning of April, and you're telling the kids the program's not going to be around now. Where are they going to go? 
all these schools that are, have football programs are doing the exact same thing. They've all gone out and recruited. Their money and their scholarships are all taken. Their roster spots are taken. And so where does it leave these kids? If you knew about this, right, like it, this, is, this is not a knee-jerk uh, reaction. You knew about this for a while. Then why wouldn't you tell the kids as early as possible to give them the best opportunity to go out and find another path? You know, it just it just frustrates the hell out of me because, like I said, it it, it that experience was so it made it, it made the person I am today, and now I, I think about what it's doing to some of those kids and those poor kids that aren't going to get that a chance to experience that next year. It just it absolutely guts me. And they did go uh, make a point of saying that it said that the university is making this decision now to give students time to make other plans for their athletic careers if they choose. Uh, Also saying that SFU will be honoring athletic scholarship commitments for those who choose to stay at SFU uh, for the 2023-2024 school year. It sounds like that would be an odd thing, though, to continue on the scholarship commitment if the football program's not there anymore. Absolutely. Right? You mean that you... So you think, uh, you know, I can, you know, give you an example, say that, you know, you have a young man who's, who said, you know, I had four offers, uh, one to go to the University of Calgary, one to go to UBC, one, and I chose to go to Simon Fraser because that's where I figured I was going to get my best experience. And not only is it the football, it's the school, it's all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I accept that, that scholarship, right? Like you're saying, now if I'm going into my first year, okay, sure, I'm going to get my scholarship money, but am I get the chance to play football? No. And, and, and I think what's disappointing is that, you know, you don't get that experience that, um, that uh, so many of us who've gone there and had such a proud history um, aren't going to be able to experience it. And I know I speak for, for a lot of the alumni that uh, are out there who, you know, went there and had the, the time of their life, both as a student athlete and as a football player, now are not going to get that opportunity. And that's, I think what really is going to hurt a lot of the guys. Uh, and when we look at that as well, and, and just trying to kind of read between the lines of this announcement, uh, when they talked about the fact that they they had joined uh, what it says that outside yeah. of SFU, only two other football programs, um, that SFU joined the Lone Star Conference in 2021 for a two-year affiliate agreement, uh-huh. and that uh, in January, the conference council voted to not renew their yeah. affiliate agreement. Was that because of poor performance by the team? Well, I think, uh, I think well, yeah. Yeah, well, here's the thing. That's exactly right. Like, I would think, one, when that announcement was made, I'm sure, like, everybody else who's played up there is thinking to themselves, you're, you're a, the, the team in Vancouver, British Columbia. You're in the Pacific Northwest. How do you get to play teams in Texas? You I mean, that's not sustainable, right? You think about travel and the cost of travel and all those things. And then I think oh, the other thing, too, is, like you say, some of those teams down there, performance-wise, they're probably thinking to themselves, you know, is it worth us for us to go up there and, and, and compete? There weren't, there, they weren't competitive games. So I can see it from their standpoint. But like even now, like hearing about, well, the U sports, uh, there are opportunity maybe to go play in U sports where UBC plays. Um, you know, hearing today uh, that, uh, that U sports hasn't heard from SFU, that they, there's been no attempt to see if their application or, or process could be reviewed and maybe they could be accepted into that um, league again. So has that avenue been looked at? That tells me that they didn't even ask. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of questions that, 
that need to be answered. And I know that there's a lot of very frustrated alumni, a lot of frustrated parents and, and athletes. And I'm sure that there's still going to be a ton of questions that people have about, you know, this decision and, and what went into it. And what do you think it says kind of looking at the bigger picture as well, given that this was Canada's only NCAA team? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's football is, a, you know, and again, I understand the whole, all the dynamics of the finances. It's expensive, right? When you're dealing with that many kids and the amount of money and you, the coaches and the, and the equipment and all those things, you know, it, it, it costs a lot of money. Um, so, and, and I just think that, you know, they were able to have the kind of success that we had, you know, for all those years competing against the American schools. Uh, and it's a shame to see where it's kind of ended. Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, we'll still have to wait and see what some of the answers are as to why we are where we are. And here's the other question I have, too, is that, you know, I get that, like I said, the, all the surrounding factors. But when you have an alumni, and I'm, I'm talking not just about football, I'm talking about SFU athletics, because I'm obviously I want to see football do well, but I want to see Simon Fraser athletics do well, that if you're coming to a decision like this, that you would think that maybe you go get the, the alumni involved. Like you go to the alumni and you say, hey, listen, this is what's happening. We, you know, whether it's money or whether it's whatever the situation is, you get these people together because there's a lot of people in this community that have, have experienced the, the athletic program in whatever sport that want to do whatever they can to help, whether it's money or whether it's through connection, whatever, that you would have thought they would have come to the, the alumni and said, hey, listen, this is the deal. We've got to fix this because if we don't fix it, this is what the end result's going to be. So at least you feel like you had a chance to take a swing and, and try to help. That's why it just feels like we didn't even get that opportunity. Well, I, I know certainly there is a lot of disappointment today. And like you said, there are still so many questions about this. Julio, we'll have to leave it there, though. But thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jill. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.